Okay, how's everybody doing this morning? We all uh, enjoying this nice weather for, for the week or so that we have it? <laughs> or whatever. Okay. Well, I'd like to add my welcome to all of you to Bridge Church. You know, we're uh, all about reaching our community for the Lord Jesus Christ, building bridges into other people's lives. Uh, gee, that's really carefully crafted, isn't it, since the name of the church is the Bridge Church. Anyway, so this is 11 o'clock service. Thank you for coming today. We thank our, our uh, listeners and watchers on YouTube and on Facebook also this morning. I apologize. I'm probably going to be uh, drinking quite a bit of water today because my voice is getting a little raspy, so I'll try to avoid that. But for any of you who do not know, my name is Mark Holbrook, and I'm normally hiding up here on stage playing bass, but not today. I got drafted. It was my turn to bring the sermon today, so hence I am standing before you. But before I even get into any of that, I'd like to first give you another update on our pastor search process, um, just to kind of summarize where we've been up till now. Um, the pulpit committee held a number of meetings and screened a large number of applicants. Once this process is all done, I can tell you how many, but I'll just kind of keep that as a secret for now. And we worked to identify those that look like the best candidates for final consideration. So the purpose of the committee was to take a look at everybody who wanted to apply for a position here and to try to down-select. So after completing the down-selection process, we solicited written responses through our questionnaire process from the select group of individuals that were left through this grueling down-selection <laughs> and conducted video interviews supported by an additional set of questions that we had. And after evaluating all of the available information, our team ranked the final group of applicants and provided our recommendations to the church board. So that part is done. We turned it over to the board. Amen. <laughs> the board evaluation of the final application group is in progress using the information and the materials that our committee developed for their purposes. So we have entered a final stage, or a critical phase, I should say. It's probably not the final, final stage, but we've entered a critical phase. And I ask that you continue to pray for the board now to be granted wisdom by the Lord as to who should be our future pastor here at the Bridge Church. So I just lift them up, and I ask that you pray for them throughout the ensuing weeks until we come to a resolution of this process, which hopefully will be soon. Okay, So... With that set aside, let's transition into what I have for you today. Now, first I heard about a man, I heard about a man that got up early one Sunday morning and he looked out his window and he saw that it was a picture-perfect spring morning, kind of like today. It's beautiful out there, right? There was beautiful sunshine, warm temperatures, and best of all, there wasn't any wind. So obviously this guy didn't live in Idaho. Anyway. But anyway, the man, he, he turned to his wife, turned to his wife and noticed that since it was such a wonderful morning that he needed to play a round of golf, just like any good guy would want to do. However, his wife suggested instead that it would be a much better choice if he were to go with her to church. So the man paused for a second and he began to ponder. And then he finally turned to his wife and he says, well, just 
give me one good reason why I shouldn't go play golf this morning. And she came back very quickly and said, because you're the pastor. Okay, okay. Well, with that, <laughs> we want to start off on a high note. Anyway, my sermon today is going to be focused on mercy and forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness. Now, several months ago, probably back around the beginning of the year, I was listening to CSN radio, and I was impacted by an Alistair Begg teaching. Now, I don't know how many people know Alistair Begg, but he's got a very well-known show that runs every day on CSN radio around the country. And he's the pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. But Alistair grew up in Scotland, so he's got this beautiful voice. You know, this accent he's got is just, and he's managed to hold on to it all these 30 years that he's lived in the United States. So he's an excellent teacher, highly recommend him. Um, but anyway, as part of his teaching on this particular subject of mercy and forgiveness, Alistair used a story from King David's life to illustrate a human character trait that has been with us since the beginning. He brought up several points that I hadn't considered. So I've included some of them throughout what I have for you today. So the first scripture this morning is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I'll be uh, reading from NIV through all the scriptures today. But, <clears throat> but before we get into chapter 12, I want to kind of paraphrase a little bit of chapter 11 that obviously comes before it to get some context. <clears throat> and so if you, if you were to glance at chapter 11 and look at verse 1, you would see that um, it is springtime, kind of like it is now, although we're moving into summer, but it was springtime, a time when the kings would go off to war. So David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. However, David remained in Jerusalem. So basically, David had some downtime. He had some time on his hands while his armies were out battling the uh, various tribes around him. I think it was the Ammonites to be exact. So if you read through the rest of chapter 11, you learn that King David's, about King David's tryst with Bathsheba which resulted in her getting pregnant. David's directing the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, and taking her as his wife. It's after all of that tragic behavior that we pick up the story today, which involves the prophet Nathan. So we're not going to dig up all that bad behavior in chapter 11, but we're going to shift our focus into chapter 12 here. So the story that we're picking up starts in verse 1 of chapter 12. It involves, as I said, the prophet Nathan. Now the Lord sent Nathan to David. So already we know that there's something going on here. So when Nathan came to David, when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food. He drank 
or the, the lamb drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. In verse 5, we see that David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Then Nathan turned to David and said, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives to your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Now the reason I'm starting with this David story this morning is because it illustrates something that I find as a tendency in my own heart and you may share it. Namely, (laughs) the ability to very quickly detect a problem in somebody else while ignoring the problem that I face myself. This condition is pointed out by Jesus in the New Testament. In the book of Luke, For example, Jesus talks about seeing specks of sawdust in other people's eyes while at the same time overlooking the fact that we have a plank in our own eye. So let's shift. Let's shift over to the New Testament, to the book of Luke in chapter 6. Again, I'll be reading from the NIV. And this portion of Scripture that we're going to look at today very carefully is located in a well-known section called the Beatitudes. But for today's discussion, I want to focus on the verses that are located just before the sawdust and plank metaphor. So let's start with verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. Give you an opportunity to turn there or turn on your app or whatever you have with you this morning. (laughs) So verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say... Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other to them, or turn turn them the other. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others 
as you would have them do to you. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be paid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now that is an impactful section of Scripture, if I've ever read one. This brings us to the very core of what Jesus is teaching about, the concept of forgiveness and mercy. That is the core of what Jesus is talking about in this section of Scripture. He's confronting us with the fact that each of us, if we're honest or injected with truth serum, are inclined to discover and condemn the faults in others while passing very lightly over our own sins. Now, I believe that this condition plays a large part in today's and our historical societal woes. So in regard to the latter portion of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 6, I intend to focus on three things. The principle, the practice, and the promise contained within these portions of Scripture. Now the principle that we want to talk about this morning is found in verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now this verse might be regarded as a summary statement for all that Jesus had previously said in the previous verses concerning love for your enemies, doing good for them, and lending to them without expecting to get anything back. If somebody had listened to all of that instruction and said to Jesus, can you simply put that in a principle for us? Kind of like dumb it down, make it simple for us. Jesus might have said, well, how about this? Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Okay? And if someone else had just joined the Zoom meeting and began listening to Jesus' sermon, they might be tempted to say, how will that actually work out? Well, maybe the following will help us unpack this principle. For God is kind, as we noticed in verse 35, even to the ungrateful and to the wicked. So God is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Stop and think about that for a minute. This is a part of God's nature. And since he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, remember that scripture, we as his children by faith through Christ are to be kind to the ungrateful 
and the wicked too. That's, that's some strong, strong implications there. So let me say that again. This is a part of his nature. And since he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, we, as his children, are called by faith through Christ to be kind and ungrateful to the wicked too. Now, there's a basic premise here, namely, that if you look at verse 35 and it says, your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High, Jesus is not saying that if we do certain things or act in a particular way, we will be made or we'll make ourselves the sons of God. That would be works-based righteousness, which is not correct. No, in fact, it's the reverse of that. It's by our conducting ourselves in a certain manner that we prove ourselves to be the sons of God. In other words, that people look at us and say, my, you're so much like your heavenly father. Remember what Pastor Daniel talked about last week on Sunday for Father's Day. He talked about how children are incredibly observant, and they are, <laughs> that they will copy and mimic the actions that they see around them. And Pastor Daniel said, let's love Jesus so much that our kids copy us. That's awesome. And in the same way, it should be possible for someone to detect the traces of our Heavenly Father in us. Jesus is saying that there is a family resemblance, and it is this. Show mercy towards those who regard us as crazy for exercising mercy. There is a good quote to tuck away in your memory banks, and it's this. In fact, I think this comes from uh, Thomas Brooks who hasn't been around for a while. He was a well-known pastor back in the 1600s. That's just a few years ago, of course. But uh, this is a very good quote. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And that is what Jesus is saying. I want you to respond to evil by doing good. I want you to respond to being done wrong by exercising kindness. I want you to respond to the fact that people have cheated you by giving without regard for potential return. In other words, I want you to emulate and imitate your Father, your Heavenly Father. Now, as Pastor Daniel discussed, imitation is a vital part of life. For example, imitation is a vital part of learning a golf swing. <laughs> I know this well. Uh, muscle memory is, part of, is based on the concept of imitation and repetition. And both of these characteristics can be applied to the act of becoming like our Father. Imitation and repetition. We are to emulate him. I am the Lord your God, Leviticus 11 tells us. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. In other words, be like your dad. Jesus said, as I have loved you, you must also love each other. In other words, imitate me. Well, next, let's go to the practical implications of the principle. What does it mean in practice to be merciful as your father is merciful? Well, it's worked out in verse 37 for us. And for those who are very linear thinkers like myself, <laughs> you will probably agree that this is very orderly. The principles provided in verse 36, 
The practice then follows in verse 37 and it is developed in the context of two negative commands followed by two positive commands. Pretty simple. Negative command number one, do not judge. Negative command number two, do not condemn. Positive command number one, forgive. Positive command number two, give. Now this morning, we're going to talk about these first three commandments. Uh, we'll save the fourth to give for a later opportunity because there's a whole sermon just in that one. So we're going to focus today on do not judge, do not condemn, and forgive. So, see how simple that was? Does anybody have any questions? I think we're done. I think we can close the service now and we can all go home. Well, maybe not. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll dig a little bit more into this first. <sighs> because I don't think most of us know what the phrase do not judge means. We all have various ideas what it means. But what does it mean within the context of what Jesus is teaching us here? What does it mean, do not judge? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably found or heard the phrase, judge not, lest ye be judged. And you'll probably have encountered this phrase being used by some of the most unlikely people in the most unlikely times and used in the most unbelievable ways. Therefore, it's important that we understand exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, do not judge. So let's try and understand what it does not mean. Let me repeat what it does not mean, and then we'll talk about what it does mean. First of all, it does not mean that Jesus is prohibiting the exercise of justice in a court of law. The Bible, as you take it in its totality, upholds the rule of law, sets aside a place for the state in the exercise of law, and Christian people are to uphold the rule of law, including punishment of those who do wrong and for the well-being of those who do right. Jesus is not prohibiting the administration of justice. Instead, the instruction is about the matter of individual relationships. That's the context of what he's talking about in this portion of Scripture. Jesus is not teaching that we're supposed to turn a blind eye to sin, that we are to refuse to point out error in love, or that we don't have to discern between good and evil. We do. That should be obvious because the rest of the instruction demands the ability to discern. In other words, Jesus' teaching calls us to use our critical thinking skills. Don't turn off your brain. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. So then, let me summarize what it's not. Jesus is not, in this phrase, setting aside law courts, nor is he encouraging his followers to suspend their thinking skills. Not in the, not in the least. Well, then what is he doing? What is it that Jesus is telling us here? What it is is that we must not do or he's telling us what we must not do if we are to not judge. The answer is, he is condemning a characteristic called censoriousness. Censoriousness. An interesting word. Now, I'm a little prideful. <laughs> I'm a little prideful on my vocabulary skills. 
But as I was studying this out, I didn't have a clue what that word meant when I ran across it. I didn't have a clue. I won't ask for a show of hands in here if everybody who knows knew that definition, but I'm going to give it to you here in a second. What is censoriousness? What does it mean to be censorious? Well, it's defined as a spirit of self-righteous, self-exalting, hypocritical, harsh judgmentalism. Now, isn't that just a pleasant word? No, not anymore. Talk about a definition that makes me personally uncomfortable. You know, no one in here is going to want to be accused of being censorious. Trust me. In fact, it sounds a lot like the character trait that King David was suffering from in our opening story, a story that Nathan called him out on. The meaning of censoriousness is best explained by this teaching from Alistair Begg. It's an approach to people which seeks to avoid self-examination by highlighting and condemning the faults in others. The person who has this brings with them the flavor of bitterness. It's negative. It's destructive. It actively seeks out the faults in others. And it is delighted when it finds other people's faults. Don't you just like to be around people like that? It's not simply that it identifies faults when it trips over them, but it actually goes in search of them and holds them up before the individual to say to them, you see? You see what you're like? And all the time, it's in the spirit of harsh judgmentalism. I think, for example, we don't have to look far in today's society to see that our, no matter what your perspectives are, that our country's politics are completely consumed with censoriousness. No matter what your thoughts are on that subject. I think you would agree with me on that. King David, in seeing what was done to a lamb, manages through a spirit of censoriousness to disguise what he's done in a relationship to Bathsheba, who is lying in the, in the back bedroom. So do not judge. It's not setting aside law courts. It's not asking us to suspend our critical facilities. Jesus is asking us to beware of this spirit, spirit of censoriousness. Indeed, not simply to beware of it, but to identify it and get it out of our lives. To come down on the wrong side of this is a significant danger to us. There are two extremes related to this. Either people are walking around without a clue what's going on. I've got no opinion about this. I don't care about that. I'm not supposed to judge. Just leave me be. Or in the other extreme, you've got people living in a spirit of very harsh judgmentalism. But Jesus is saying, I don't want you to live in either of those extremes. I want you to be able to exercise your critical thinking in a way that doesn't judge and secondly, doesn't condemn. When it comes to the second negative command, do not condemn, Jesus is saying, we are not, as human beings, qualified to judge and pronounce condemnation. We are not God. We don't have his knowledge. We don't understand the motives that other people are operating under. We can't read other people's hearts. We are unable to accurately assess 
each other's motives. Therefore, we need to be exceptionally wary in pronouncing condemnation. We sin so easily with our tongues in this respect. The Bible says we shouldn't say anything that's untrue. That's in the Ten Commandments. We've read that before. We shouldn't say anything that's unnecessary. That's in Proverbs chapter 11. And we shouldn't say anything that's unkind. That's in Proverbs chapter 18. So what in the world are we going to say? <laughs> what are we going to talk about? If we can't do all those things, right? I know if we'd applied these principles in my former place of employment, you would have been able to hear a pin drop without any problem in that office. We always had opinions. <laughs> ah. But let's get on with something that's a little more positive. How's that? Okay? So it's time to get on with positive commands. Let's be clear. To be discriminating and critical is necessary. Discriminating as far as being able to discern in your thought processes. Okay? So to be able to discern and be critical is necessary, but critical in a loving way to be able to make decisions to be judgmental and hypercritical, on the other hand, is wrong. So that brings us to the first positive statement. It's the first word in the third sentence of verse 37, and it's the word forgive. Forgive. What an important word. Now just think for a moment about the kind of transformation that would occur in our relationships if we were able to take seriously this one directive to forgive. The bondage in which individuals, families, Churches and other groups can be traced, in a majority of cases, to the unwillingness to obey this one simple directive to forgive. It's not the same as excuse. To forgive is not the same as deny or be in denial. It's not the same as just forget it, you know, for a while and it'll pass over and it'll be all okay. It'll all turn out okay. It is actually an act of the will driven by the Word of God, enabled by the Spirit of God to recognize that although this person is a total pain in the neck, I say that without any sincereness, <laughs> that I'm still to forgive this person. Now personally, I've always, I've always uh, tucked this little thought that I picked up many, many years ago about forgiveness. I look at forgiveness this way. When you forgive someone, you give up your right to get even. It doesn't excuse what the other person did, but you give up your right to get even, to one-up them or whatever. That's forgiveness. It's the whole business in one word. Forgive. If you want to spend the rest of your life known for just one thing, perhaps you would like it to be known as you're a forgiving person. How radical would that be to forgive? Another example of censoriousness pops up in the story of the prodigal son. As you may recall, after the prodigal comes back, having made a mess of his life, his father, who in the story represents God, runs out to him and welcomes the prodigal home. But out in the fields, the prodigal's brother, Mr. Censorious, <laughs> He's not thrilled to see his brother return. No, he's not. Instead, his response to the news shows that he is full of harsh judgmentalism. In contrast, think about Jacob's son, Joseph. 
And his response towards his brothers, whom, he, whom had offended him so badly when he was young. Remember when Joseph was young, his brothers threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery into Egypt. Years later, when his brothers came to Egypt to buy food for their family in Israel, Joseph is now the second in command over all of Egypt. And contrary to what I probably would have done if I had been in Joseph's shoes, he says, hey, come here. And he starts to hug his brothers. Now, they didn't understand at that time what was going on, but he hugged all of his brothers. And based on what the brothers had done, did, did Joseph have the justification to put them all in jail? Well, of course he did, if you're exercising justice. But in terms of demonstrating the mercy that God had already shown to Joseph, the answer was absolutely no. Joseph responded with forgiveness. Forgiveness. So this essentially brings us full circle to where we started this morning, which is the hypocrisy of the unforgiving spirit. And to quote Alistair Begg again, when I refuse to forgive somebody else, it says this, that I have minimized the enormity of my offense, and I choose to maximize the enormity of their offense. That I have not understood my need for forgiveness for God, for if I had, recognizing all that I am, then I would be quick to forgive others who need forgiveness for me. And when I, fought, when I fail to forgive someone from my heart, then I exaggerate their offenses against me, while at the same time making little of my own. Ooh, that stings. The difference between this situation and the one in which you're asking God's forgiveness is this. In our own case, we accept excuses too easily. In other people's, we don't accept them easily enough. As regards my own sins, it's a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are not really so good as I think, in my own case. As regard to other men's sins against me, it's a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are better than I think. One must therefore begin by attending carefully to everything which may show that the other man was not so much to blame as we thought. But even if he is absolutely fully to blame, we still have to forgive him. And even if 99% of his apparent guilt can be explained away by really good excuses. The problem of forgiveness begins with that 1% of guilt that is left over. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. When we are prepared to live with that spirit of generosity, then the promise of God is clear. If you don't judge, you won't be judged. If you don't have a judgmental spirit, the chances are good that someone else will not be judgmental towards you. It's also true, ultimately, in terms of standing before the bar of God's judgment. We escape judgment on that day because we are in Christ, and we know that we are in Christ 
because we demonstrate it by the compassion of our hearts, which chooses to forgive. So to sum this all up, one, do not judge with a censorious spirit. And what's the promise? You're not going to be judged either. Two, do not condemn. And what's the promise? You won't be condemned. Praise God. And three, and not the least, forgive. And what's the promise? We all will be forgiven. Let us pray. Father, we just pray for your spirit to fill us this week, Lord God, to open doors for us to be able to love others, to forgive others, to be able to share in the good news of your son Jesus and the redemption that he offers through the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we just pray for all those who are in need in our church body. Father, we just lift up those that are hurting. Lord, we lift up those that need physical healing. Lord, we trust in you, Father, to strengthen all of us together as a family, and not just a family within the Bridge Church, but a family within all our brothers and sisters whom we love so deeply here in other congregations in southeast Idaho. Lord, and here in Idaho Falls, Father, we, just, we pray for all our brothers and sisters this morning, but most of all, we pray, Lord, that you will plant in our hearts a desire to, to have mercy and to forgive those, Lord, whom we may have some odd against, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that we will be able to follow, follow your guidance and to, in some way, be able to emulate you as our Father, to copy you, to be able to express your love for others through us as your instrument, Lord, as you will and then for your purposes. So, Lord, today we close this service and we give you all the thanks in the precious, the matchless, the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> if you're needing prayer, if you need prayer this morning, we do have a prayer team that will be down up front here that can pray with you for whatever needs you may bring forward. I encourage you to do so. I also encourage you to stick around. We got coffee out in the lobby. You can tank up on coffee. And we just enjoy a, a, a wonderful time of fellowship. And otherwise, have a great week. You're dismissed. Thank you. <laughs>